You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. Hi, and welcome to The Blackest Questions. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Greer, politics editor for The Griot and associate professor of political science at Fordham University. In this podcast, we ask our guests five of The Blackest Questions so we can learn a little bit more about them and have some fun while we're doing it. We're also going to learn a lot about Black history, past and present. So here's how this works. We have five rounds of questions about us, Black history, the entire diaspora, current events, you name it. And with each round, the questions get a little tougher, and the guest has 10 seconds to get it right. If they answer the question correctly, they'll receive one symbolic black fist, and they'll hear this. And if they get it wrong, they'll hear this. But we still love them anyway. And after the five questions, there'll be a black bonus round at the end just for fun. I like to call it Black Lightning. Our guest for this episode is neoclassical pianist and composer Black Bach, born Charles Wilson III. Black Fox's explosive and immersive live music performances engage his audience with his incredible talent and channel his experience from sharing the stage with the world's biggest performers as lead pianist or musical director with artists including Rihanna, Justin Timberlake, Demi Lovato, Cirque du Soleil, John Mayer, and many, many more. Black Box's critically acclaimed debut album, Black Book, served as a founding cornerstone at the Juneteenth Foundation's Freedom Concert and his first mixtape release, Cover Art, and current mixtape project, Angels Watching Over Me, with world-renowned tenor Lawrence Brownlee, illustrate the innovative and disruptive musical landscape that is Black Bach. Hello, Black Bach. Thank you so much for joining The Blackest Questions. Thank you, Dr. Greer. It's so cool to be here. Listen, I'm trying not to be nervous because I haven't taken piano since I was an itty bitty. And so I was like, before he came, I was like, okay, should I dust off this keyboard and start, you know, doing my little chopsticks? Absolutely. (laughs) Trying to do my runs. Okay. So talk to us. How did you get into piano? Are you, you know, from a musical family and why this particular instrument? I'm always fascinated as to did piano choose you or did you choose piano? Actually, my mom chose piano and then she gave me no options. There we go. So <laughs> I come from a musical family, yes. Um, uh, granddad was a music legend in Memphis. Uncles were also uh, saxophonists and tap dancers. And then my mom was like, you know, you're going to do this or, you know, or else. Right. So piano was just the choice. I always say Black moms always give us an, an option, right? It's like either yeah. you're doing this or yeah. this is going to happen. So exactly. you do technically have options, yeah. <laughs> but it's yeah. just not the most like But you don't take option. option B, like there's exactly. only option A, yeah. And so I know that, you know, your Bach is one of your favorite composers. Who are some of your other influences? I'm a huge Mozart fan. I could listen to Mozart, you know, while I'm writing, while I'm cleaning, just to kind of clear my head. Who are some of the folks that you, that are your go-to composers that really inspire you? In the classical world, I would say that my go-to composers are Debussy and okay. Chopin. Mm. Very much in romantic music. Like I, yeah. love, I love what Chopin had to say. Like his perspective, amazing. Now, um, tell us what's one of your favorite Chopin uh, overtures that we should we should check out on YouTube. Oh, the Nocturnes. Any of okay. the Nocturnes. Any of the Nocturnes. Yeah. Okay. And then outside of the classical world, do you listen to any jazz pianists? Of course. Okay, I'm so a big Thelonious Monk fan. Mm. Um, I'm also a McCoy Tyner fan back in my early days. Um, mm-hmm. I still listen to um, 
I would say like Patrice Russian. So it's just a little, it's, you know, my listening is wide. I listen to everything. Yeah. Well, I've, I find that great musicians tend to have a, a diffuse palette, if you will. Yeah. And tell us how the name Black Bok came about. So it's B-L-K-B-O-K. Mm-hmm. So two things. First one was, you know, a shot. Shout out to my man, Johan Sebastian. Um, and then the second one is my dad used to always say, everything will be okay, but you got to be okay with everything. Mm. So kind of a message to Black culture saying that we'll be okay. Mm. I love the, the sort of subversive Kendrick and Johan. I feel like yeah. we need a little t-shirt with like, <laughs> we going to be okay with Kendrick yeah, Lamar exactly. and Johan Sebastian Bach yeah, exactly. together. And maybe exactly. a picture of you up there too, like a little, yeah. you know, a, a musical Mount Rushmore, if we will. Yeah, I'm with <laughs> okay. that. Okay, Bach, are you ready to answer some of the Blackest questions? I am. Let's okay. go. Let's get started. Okay, question number one. With the exclusive mission of honoring the life, purpose, and legacy of the celebrated father of Pan-Africanism by redeveloping and rebranding his final resting place in Accra, Ghana, who is he? That is the... I have no idea. Okay. Lost answer, on that one. The answer is W.E.B. Du Bois. Oh. So... With okay. interest and dedication of the W, the Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois Foundation is to revive the current Du Bois Memorial Center into a museum complex and as a destination for scholars, artists, and heritage tourists alike. And the foundation's goal is to realize the W.E.B. Du Bois Museum's full potential as an international treasure and historic memorial honoring one of the leading and most revered Black voices in world history. Because W.E.B. Du Bois' final resting place is in Ghana. Um, and so... Obviously, lots of Black Americans have, have made the pilgrimage there. Have you been to Ghana? I've never been to Ghana. No, you know. I always wanted to go. Well, I think maybe we should have a field trip. Yeah. Um, where, where are some of the places, some of the travels that your music has taken you, that, you know, have stuck with you over time? Ironically, my travels have taken me to every continent except Africa. No. I have been everywhere except. I think there's something special that's brewing Mm-hmm. that mm. there's going to be something that takes me there that's going to be really like a, a special occasion. Um, but I've been everywhere. I've been to Australia, all over Europe, South America, um, all over Asia. It, it, it's, I've been everywhere except. Okay, I can't wait for you. I, I want you to come back on Blackest Questions once you go to the continent yeah. and you know tell us the differences, how you felt about playing in the East versus the West, versus yeah. the North, versus the South. So... Tell us a little bit more about when you go and you play. Can you feel a palpable difference when you're playing in, say, Asia, maybe Japan or, or China or wherever, you, you know, tell us where you've been versus, you know, when you play in Atlanta or Memphis or Detroit or New York City? Yeah, very a huge difference. I mean, especially in, in places like you say, like like Japan or uh, China, where the culture is just a little bit different and how you receive music is different you know there's a, a very much a you know wait until the end and then clap and it's very formal as opposed to you know us in america we kind of like you know if we feel it we scream it you know we clap we applause we you know and to me i think both of them have a very interesting place um in just how music is received um but there are differences in every continent every the city that you go to, there's a difference between Atlanta and say Detroit, mm-hmm. you know, like my Detroit folks, we do. Yeah. We just, yeah, we just let it out, right. <laughs> you know, as opposed to, you know, other places where it's a little bit more conservative people, um, uh, 
wait for the pieces to end and they don't, you know, scream and shout during the piece. Now, which do you prefer? Do you feed off the energy? You know, when people are like, go on, do it. Both, <laughs> actually both, you know, okay. they both have, have their um, significance. Yeah. Okay. And then what's your, what's been one of your favorite pieces to play? Is it your original stuff or is it other works by great composers? Uh, definitely originals. Oh, definitely really? Originals. Yeah. I love playing my own music. It's, it's to me, it's like getting on stage and opening up my chest and letting everyone see what's inside, the vulnerability, the love, the passion, the heartbreak, the anger, all of the emotions, all the feels like people get to see that. Oh, so, yeah. Okay. I, you need just a t-shirt line. So okay. all the feels like the feels. come to this concert, you're getting all the feels. You get all the feels. So if you could talk to say aspiring young pianists, you know, cause you got your, you, what age was your first kind of big concert? Oh, at four, at age four, it was my first recital. Wow. Um, so I would say to young, young students, just don't quit. Mm. Don't quit. Like whatever you do, you will have moments where you'll want to. Um, mm. And I would also say to their parents and the, to the people that are their guardians and like are watching over these kids, don't let them quit. Mm. My mom had a rule up until 18, I could play. After 18, she said, you're an adult, you can do what you want to do. Interesting. Yeah. Because I mean, I will say, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to diss my parents at all because they were fantastic. But when I was done with the piano, I think they were like, Woo, all right, we're done too. <laughs> they were like, thank goodness this girl does not have it. <laughs> now, and, you know, our family, one side is a little more musical than the others, but I, I definitely did not have the piano gene. I will say this though, to make you proud, when I uh, finished graduate school, I defended my dissertation, I went out and bought a trumpet that day and I took trumpet lessons for uh, like two or three years. Uh, but living in New York City was a little difficult. I'd practice in my car. And so that's actually not the best place yeah, to practice, you know, yeah. for, for the, the best environment. But. No, it is not. So my musical ability um, sort of ends with watching your clips on YouTube and enjoying the music. Okay, not bad. <laughs> All right, well, let's take a quick commercial break and we will come back with Black Bach answering more of the Blackest questions. The Griot Black Podcast Network is here, and it's everything you've been waiting for. News, talk, entertainment, sports, and today's issues, all from the Black perspective. Ready for real talk and Black culture amplified? Be inspired. Listen to new and established voices now on the Griot Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Griot Mobile app and tune in everywhere great podcasts are heard. Okay, we are back with Black Bach. And are you ready for question number two, Bach? I don't know. Question one got me. So <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. intimidated now. And listen, as I always tell our listeners, this podcast is just for us to have fun and learn a little something. And hopefully our listeners, you know, will or will not know the answers. But, you know, my argument, Bach, is Black history is American history, and all of us should know these answers, no matter where we come from, what our race or ethnic background is. And so hopefully our listeners are learning something along the way, not just about you, but about our rich and beautiful history that is all of the Black diaspora. Okay, question number two. Question two. This legendary dance duo watched their mother play piano at the old Standard Theater in Philadelphia while their father played drums. Who are they? Oh my gosh, I can see them. They're two two guys. Oh my gosh. They're two guys. I can't they're brothers. 
Oh my gosh. I can see them dancing, but I can't mm-hmm. call their name. Oh, give me a hint. <laughs> uh, the last name might remind you of Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> it's wow. the Nicholas Brothers. The Nicholas Brothers. Yeah. Listen, and I have real sympathy because my my podcast sibling, Panama Jackson, had me on his Grio podcast, Dear Culture, and I was 0 for 2. And the thing is, I knew these answers. It's just when they're asked in a timed yeah. setting, yeah. things change. Exactly. But the Nicholas Brothers, two of the greatest tap dancers that ever lived, certainly the most beloved dance team in the history of entertainment, are Fayard and Harold, the famous Nicholas brothers. And at the age of three, Fayard was always seated in the front row while his parents worked. And by the time he was 10, he'd seen most of the great black vaudeville acts, particularly the dancers. And so the Nicholas brothers were contracted to the 20th Century Fox studio in 1940, and they made six films there. And in all, they've made over 30 films of which they themselves consider Stormy Weather, which is from 1943, their personal favorite. That's the one, Bach, that both of us have seen where it features their now classic breathtaking staircase routine and their last appearance on film as a routine. And so their last appearance on film as a team was one of the highlights of MGM's 1985 compilation, That's Dancing. So you come from a family of musicians, grandfather uh, has a star on the Walk of Fame in Memphis, I'm told. You've got a famous saxophone playing uncle, and you've got tap dancers you mentioned in your family. So what was that like growing up around so many artistic individuals, especially artistic men who served as mentors? It was, it was amazing because it was like, it left a blueprint for me. It mm-hmm. left the, the possibility, you know, the possibility of being an entertainer, successful entertainer. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this wonderful movie called Tap with Gregory Hines and, and uh, Sammy Davis Jr. And my uncle just happened to be in that movie dancing with um, with uh, Gregory Hines. And um, it just made me always think that there were po- possibilities to do entertainment um, in a way um, that these people, my you know uncles and grandfather were opening doors for me. Um, mm. And I try to carry that same energy in opening doors for younger musicians and younger artists uh, to give them a possibility to know that, you know, if you want to do art for a living, it's possible. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's so many families who actually are supportive. I mean, I think we we definitely hear the stories of folks who are just like, my parents, you know, were not supportive of this lifestyle at all. And I, I just had to go it alone. But I, I feel like I'm hearing more and more stories, especially of Black artists who are just like, oh, no, my parents told me it was going to be difficult, but it was also possible. And they, they poured into me this love and support. Um, you know, measuring Gregory Hines, I just feel like we lost him so young and I don't feel like we've ever given him his proper just due. I know he's got a postage stamp, but I still feel like growing up, I remember Gregory Hines. You know, and obviously I saw the Nichols brothers and that famous routine in Stormy Weather, but someone who was more tangible and in sort of, of our era, it felt, was Gregory Hines. Exactly. And so to not have him around, I, I feel like we need to talk about him a lot more. Yeah, I agree. I think he was a, a groundbreaker. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially breaking in, breaking tap uh, dancers into film. Like mm-hmm. he carried on that tradition from the Nichols Brothers. So, yeah. Right. And then we've got Savion Glover, Bring right. the Noise, Bring the Funk, which is a right. direct lineage of right. Gregory Hines. And so I, I just feel like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to make a mental note to 
to do a little more research and honor Gregory Hines properly. Now, in addition to playing piano, have you dabbled in other instruments or did you ever dabble in tap? Actually, I did dabble in tap when I was a little kid. Um, I took tap for about two years when I was a kid. Um, definitely helped with learning rhythm and understanding rhythm. Yes. Um, so I also uh, am a drummer. I played on the drum line mm. in middle school and high school. Um, so, uh, yeah, other instruments. And now it's like, you know, accordion and melodica and all these kind of weird things. Like I just, just decided to make a left turn and start, you know, getting into wacky world or what yeah. most people would consider a wacky world. Right. But I mean, you know, the, the fact that we could be listening to a future Black Bach album with you playing accordion and a little polka, you know, beat in the background. It's like, you know what? All systems go. I'm into yeah. it. I'm oh, good. <laughs> when you when you mentioned tap, I was just thinking, I was like, yeah, I did tap for like hot second, like kickball change. Yeah. You know, the thing is, and I mean, I you know, I have, a, I have a diverse set of interests. I dabble in a lot of things, but I will say my parents let me quit a lot of things. So it's like, oh, I like dance today. Yeah. Eh, well, not tomorrow. So here we are. Um, and now I wish it's like, oh, you know, I could have been the next Gregory Hines. Hardly. But <laughs> I do wish that I'd, I'd stuck with certain things yeah. um, because my, especially my piano knowledge is is a touch limited. Um, and you see pianos all the time. And I love when, you know, my cousins who are very musically uh, inclined can just sit down and just play. And as you said, express themselves some days yeah. uh, when words just can't. Yeah, absolutely. So okay. It is such a wonderful thing. We're so thankful that you actually share your music and your talent with us. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break. We're with Black Bach, and you're listening to The Blackest Questions. Okay, we are back. I'm here with Black Bach, the famed musician, and we are playing The Blackest Questions. Are you ready for question number three, Bach? Absolutely, yes. Okay. Inspired by the Tuskegee Airmen, a painted fiberglass structure stands 16 feet tall in the Battery Park section of Manhattan, painted by this artist. Got me on that one too. Okay, this artist is Hebrew Brantley. And so this monumental sculpture features artist Hebrew Brantley's signature character, Flyboy, titled The Great Debate, and will be featured between November 14th, 2021, and November 13th, 2022. Within the canon of comics, very few um, characters of color exist, and Flyboy was created by Brantley as an exploration into what a superhero character of color would look like. And Flyboy was inspired by the Tuskegee Airmen, who were the first African-American military aviator pilots who fought in World War II, and they carried out all successful missions and had the lowest loss records of all fighter groups. And this was at a time when Black folks were treated far less than equal, and the, Tus the Tuskegee Airmen's successes meant that much more. And so Flyboy is a nod of admiration and respect to these men, and an inspiration to future generations, aspiring to soar far above their predicted possibilities. So I've been told that you're a big aviation fan, and in fact, I hear that your favorite hobby is building model airplanes, yeah. and that you and your dad built them together growing up, and you've continued to do so. So please tell us more about this model airplane talent and hobby that you and your dad have. Yeah. So, you know, just as a way to connect as, you know, father to son back in the day, he would just uh, get model airplanes and we would get glue and just, you know, sit there for hours and work on a plane. Um, actually, it would end up being days. It would be, you know, a certain amount of hours over a certain amount of days. Um, 
but as well, my dad used to take me to air shows. So um, that's kind of where the interest in aviation became began. Um, as well as if I was not playing piano, and a lot of people don't know this, I would probably be flying airplanes. Ooh. Yeah. Now, would you be flying airplanes like through the military or would you be flying commercial airplanes, you know, working for a commercial airline or would you be like a private pilot? Like walk us through this. So I was totally going to go into the Air Force. Like okay. I was, that was the plan out of um, second year of college to go into Air Force. So um, I had kind of the split decision, you know, fly planes or do music. And uh, as you can see, as one does. choice, <laughs> you know, um, and it's been uh, still a hobby and an interest of mine. I'm sure at some point I will uh, go to school and get my wings um, and learn to fly um, because I just, I love it. I think there's so much freedom uh, in the air. So. Well, that, that seems to be a theme with you and your music too, this idea of freedom. And as a birder, um, I'm, I'm thoroughly interested in this idea of just being able to be free, right? Yeah. Literally with like the wind in our in our face, the wind at our back, and just this idea of like not having to, to be bogged down with anything. And so I, I think that this idea of aviation and music for you actually doesn't seem that at odds oh, wow. in your yeah. philosophy. Now, have you ever flown a plane? No, I have not. Okay, so we're gonna put this on our yeah, to-do list. Definitely on the list. And do you collect any of the model airplanes or what do you and your dad do once you've put these planes together? Uh, as a kid, it was kind of crazy because I would actually just, you know, pretend I was, you know, in my room with the plane just flying around. Um, and usually they fall break, something like that, you know. Um, but now I just, you know, it's about the journey, about, you know, putting it together. And then once it's done, it's kind of like it goes in a drawer mm -hmm. and then I start a new one. Mm -hmm. So um, I much, uh, very much so enjoy just like I said, the, the journey of putting it together. And, um, and now I've become, you know, the, the older I get, the more I, I become like very uh, intricate and very mm -hmm. tedious about actually how um, the colors and paint and now all these other things have come into it. When before it was just slapping glue on plastic. Right. Now, yeah. is that similar to your process of writing music? So is very it similar. an intricate, tedious process or do you just kind of go wide and then whittle it down? Or is it a, a very precise uh, series of movements? It's a little bit of both. Um, at first, it's very wide. And as the, a piece comes to a close, it becomes very narrow. Mm -hmm. um, the process is, you know, play until at, at the beginning, it's play until you fail. And at the mm -hmm. end, it's it's OK. What are you what am I really saying with this? How do I make this statement as clear as possible? You know, how, most of what I do is how do you chop off the stuff that's not needed? How do we mm -hmm. chop off the fat? And, mm -hmm. and um, that's kind of what has guided uh, my process to this point is, you know, start wide, go narrow. That reminds me of you know, Michelangelo's David. You know, when you go and see David in Florence, you have to pass through all of the stone that he, he sort of started working on before he was able to find David in this perfect piece of marble. So it's all these like half emerged bodies. And it's like, this isn't it. This yeah. isn't it. And then you finally get to that piece that is like this perfect man or this perfect song or this, you know, exactly. this perfect plane. Yeah. Um, and so having flown around, as you mentioned before, and traveled, what's on your wish list? Like, where would you like to fly to? What would I like to fly to? 
you know, I haven't been to Bali. Hmm. And from what I understand, I've had a bunch of friends that have went there and, and you know, they get there and, you know, six months later, I'm like, where have you been? And like, oh, I've been in Bali for six months. <laughs> you know, it's just so spiritual. It's so amazing. I found, you know, myself, I found a new way of life, a, a new freedom there. Um, so I've always wanted to go to Bali. I've never been. Okay, so we know that if ever Black Buck is like off, the, off grid, the grid, it's, that's it's just like, you know what? Don't worry, gang. I know where to find him. He's in Bali. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and I'm coming back with Black Bach. And we're back. I'm playing the Blackest Questions with Black Bach. He's here with me, ready for question number four. Are you yeah. ready? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, zero for, <laughs> I'm zero for three right now. Hey, you know what? Yeah. It's not about the points. Yeah. It's about the feeling, right? Yeah, exactly. And I'm learning new things. So, I mean, that's, to me, that's the important. And that's the whole point of the Blackest Questions. And this is why we love having people on just to play, you know, um, because Black history is American history and we should all know these things. Yes. Okay, so question number four. In collaboration with the Art of the Piano Festival, the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra and the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music launched a competition for Black American pianists in this legendary arranger of Black classical music's name. Who was she? Would it be Florence Price? No, it's Ooh. Nina Simone. Nina Simone. So Nina Simone, born Eunice Kathleen Wayman, known professionally as Nina Simone, was an American singer, songwriter, musical arranger, and civil rights activist. And her music spanned a broad range of styles, including classical, jazz, folk, R&B, gospel, and pop. And Nina referred to her music as Black classical music. She was one of the most extraordinary artists of the 20th century, an icon of American music, and she was the consummate musical storyteller and griot. So I'm assuming you've heard of Nina Simone. Of course, <laughs> yes. And so this Nina Simone piano competition, it's a biennial competition, which gives young Black American pianists ages 10 to 35 a chance to shine on a major stage in front of a distinguished audience of potential mentors, fellow musicians, and concert presenters. And so I know that you started piano lessons at age of four, or was it yeah. piano lessons or was that piano your first lessons. concert at four? Yeah, piano lessons at four. And so talk to us a little bit more about who some of your mentors were growing up and playing piano. Oh, growing up, I had an amazing piano instructor. His name was Thomas Schwartz. And he... In what city was this? This was in Detroit. Um, okay. So uh, he lived right outside uh, in the suburb called Lather Village. Um, so every Saturday, my mother would drive us from the city to Lather Village to take lessons uh, with Mr. Schwartz. Um, but also I have a uncle, I mean a cousin, who's a um, classical composer. His name is Dr. William Banfield. He was also an inspiration for me uh, as a kid growing up. Being able to see someone who was in my family, it was very close, who had you know uh, degrees in music and was also composing for the orchestra. Um, again, an example of this can be done. Mm -hmm. um, so he was very much an influence on uh, me. There was also uh, some of the Motown musicians in Detroit by name, uh, Dr. Teddy Harris, uh, Marcus Belgrave, uh, uh, Thomas Beans Bowles, uh, Charles Bowles, all of these amazing men who were involved in the Motown sound uh, were also uh, prolific pianists and musicians mm -hmm. who were my mentors who would, you know, call me on a Wednesday and, hey, boy, you coming down to the club? And I'm like, yeah, I'll be there tonight, you know, to sit in. 
And I think that's very much uh, what kept me away from trouble. A lot mm-hmm. of times were that these uh, very inspirational older gentlemen would call me to, to make sure that I was doing uh, music instead of craziness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also, I love this idea. If you could see it, you can be it, you know, and the fact that you went through all this in Detroit, you know, I'm a firm believer. I sometimes think there is something in the water. Like when I think about, say, Virginia and the area where like Missy and Genuine and Pharrell, and, you know, so many musicians and like Teddy Riley, you know, they're from this Timberland. They're from this particular area in Virginia. I'm like, is it? Is it in the soil? Like, is it in the environment? Because the amount of talent that comes out of the Detroit area, that comes out of this particular Virginia area, can't be denied. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's it's definitely in the water, Mm -hmm. and it's the community, the community, the Mm -hmm. way they support each other. You know, you look at Missy and Timbaland; they came up under Teddy Riley, and then it was like this. It's this passing on of the torch that Mm -hmm. sort of happens, and that's what keeps that energy alive. Um, very much the torch was passed to me and my uh, friends that were also musicians as we came up in Detroit. Um, And we hope to keep that legacy alive. Time for a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Blackest Questions. What was it like as a young guy? Because I mean, I went down a YouTube rabbit hole because A, I love music, even though I don't I don't play it, but I, I really appreciate classical music. I appreciate jazz music and, you know, all these different genres. Our listeners do know that when it comes to hip hop, I am stuck between 1993 and 1998 and I'm not moving and I'm fine. <laughs> uh, but all other types of music, I can be very diverse and very flexible. Um, but what's it like sitting down as, you know, as a teen next to these guys who are prolific? I mean, these are these are men that may or may not be famous, may or may not be household names, but you're sitting there absorbing their energy and their knowledge. What is that feeling like? I've, you know, in academia, we don't really have that same equivalent of that. Ex- you know, there's exchange of ideas, sure, but what is it like sitting sitting down at a club at the age of 16, 17 years old, absorbing all of this? It's a feeling that. It's it's hard to describe. It's 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 like being somewhere with someone who's not only teaching you music, but they're teaching you life, and mm-hmm. they're giving you their experiences, and they're passing on the torch to you about things that could have been different. So the knowledge base is like really really um, extreme when you think about the things that you're learning. Like I don't, at the time, I didn't understand that these were the things that they were teaching. But as an adult now, I realize, oh, these men were telling me how to deal with my finances, how to deal with my relationships, how to deal with life, how to deal with overcoming obstacles. But as, and, and all within overarching, you know, they, they slapped on, oh, here's music too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, here's music and how it should be uh, perceived. And then here's music and how it should be perceived on a spiritual level. Um, so it's just so much information that you can receive um, just sitting there with an, uh, with an old head or something like that. And they're really, really giving you the goods. And that was the beauty of Detroit. They always gave up the goods. Mm-hmm. And the great thing is one day you're going to be an old head, you know, like just, uh, <laughs> just, I mean, you know, being able to do that same thing and pass on like generations yeah. of knowledge. Absolutely. So, okay, before we move on and have a quick commercial break, okay. tell me, what was your first gig where you were like, 
I think I kind of made it a little bit. Like, I can do this. I am doing this. I think the first one was I had, uh, I was filling in for uh, one of my mentors, Teddy Harris, with, he was the musical director for Martha Nevandellas. Mm. And he couldn't do a gig that they were going to Boston. So I was 15 at the time. And he, he hired me to do this one off with Martha Nevandellas in Boston. And when I tell you everything that could happen about touring happened, I mean, like some guys got in a fight and then some people were, you know, offering me drinks as a 15 year old. Like it was crazy. It was absolutely insane. And at the end, Martha gave me an envelope and she said, baby, I'm so sorry you had to see all that craziness. And I opened the envelope and had money in it. And I was sold. I was like, oh my gosh, I get to be like this. It was like a pirate's life for me. Um, and that was the first time I, I knew that, you know, being a musician, being a touring musician was exactly what I wanted to do. Oh my gosh, I love that. Look, the pirate's life. Yeah. <laughs> the life of a pirate. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick commercial break. I'm talking to Black Bach, and you're listening to The Blackest Questions. Okay, we are back with The Blackest Questions. I'm sitting here talking to Black Bach. We are trying to figure out more and more Black history. Yes. And we're at our final question. Are you ready? Let's do it. NASCAR history was made at Daytona 500 this year when how many black team owners were in the race and who were they? Black team owners. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Definitely Michael Jordan's a new one. Um, of course, his driver Bubba Wallace is amazing. And um, how many black team owners? Uh, I would say two, because Brad Darty as well. Okay, it's actually four and you named two of the four so there are four black team owners running cars in nascar today and it's the most black ownership to ever compete in the daytona 500 so as you said nba legend michael jordan who has his 23 xi racing he's mm -hmm. in the field as is his former north carolina teammate and longtime nba center brad darty who's mm -hmm. got jtg darty and then Boxing world champion Floyd Mayweather. Mayweather, yeah. He's got the money team racing. Yeah, money team, right? And Black entrepreneur John Cohen has New York racing. Uh, oh. They're also participating. So Jordan and Daugherty's Daugherty's teams Daugherty, yeah. <laughs> had guaranteed entry into the event, while Mayweather and Cohen earned their spots as open qualifiers. And so I've been told that you are a diehard NASCAR fan, and you grew up watching these races, and yeah. you went to races where when you were a kid. So. Where did you go to these races? Who took you to these races in between playing piano and tap dancing and being with this musical family? Walk us through, because, you know, realistically, and this is the beauty of being Black, right? We have so many interests, whether yeah. it's tennis or golf or NASCAR or, you know, I played lacrosse. I mean, we are not a monolithic group. Right. But I am also very curious, you know, when we sort of think about NASCAR and the types of folks that go to NASCAR, I tend not to think about, you know, Black pianists from Detroit. So walk mm -hmm. me through how one gets to be a great NASCAR fan. Okay, well, wonderful thing about growing up in Detroit, the Motor City, mm -hmm. is that you mm. know, a, a grandfather works for Ford, sister works for Chrysler, this person works for GM. So there's some competitiveness in that. And then when you take that competitiveness to the track, um, which is, my local track is Michigan Inter Inter International Speedway. Noah Gregson. 
A.J. Allmendinger making up row one as we're about to get underway racing in Michigan. And at MIS is where my dad used to take me like every season to watch these different manufacturers compete. And in watching the manufacturers compete, I would get into the drivers, into like the actual sport itself. Um, so that's how, you know, uh, a kid from Detroit gets into NASCAR is, you know, Ford versus Dodge versus, well, Dodge doesn't compete anymore, but Ford versus uh, GM versus Toyota versus, oh. you know, manufacturers. Yeah. That is fat. I had no idea, but it makes total sense, obviously, yeah. coming from Detroit and such a, a motor industry. Now, would you ever get behind the wheel and take a few laps around the track? Absolutely. Without a doubt. Yeah. So, okay. So in a few years, we're going to be listening to a Black Bach album and you're going to have in your liner notes like, this was inspired by me flying to the continent of Africa and then <laughs> zooming around a, a racetrack, yeah. feeling free and like a bird. Yeah. Oh, wow. I, I genuinely had no idea. And, you know, I think part of it is unfortunate because for me, when I think of NASCAR, I do think of a certain demographic of people who haven't necessarily been welcoming to Bubba Wallace, who haven't necessarily been, and that, of course, this is a wide brush, right? This isn't everyone. But thinking of sort of Black people in the NASCAR world as such a small group and such a minority, I haven't really given it a chance. But now, thinking about the history, especially coming from, you know, folks in Detroit, I think I'll look at it with a new set of goggles and appreciate what's going on. I think what I do in the classical world and what is happening in NASCAR are very similar. I mean, mm, this that? is, there are, there is an immense black fan base in NASCAR. Mm -hmm. It's just unheard of. It's just that, you know, there's a perception. There's a perception that's been put out there that there's a certain demographic for this sport. Same as there's a perception, there's a very elitist demographic for classical music. Mm -hmm. When in actuality, it's not. It, it's there, it does exist, but there are Black classical fans, same as there are Black NASCAR fans. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, I love the bridging of the two. Yeah. Um, now, do you ever listen to, when you're driving around, yeah. <laughs> speeding down a Detroit <laughs> freeway, yeah. are you listening to hip hop or are you listening to classical music? Oh, both. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's the other, you know? Uh, uh, my listening is so diverse. Like, it, you know, usually people like yesterday I, I was listening to uh, William Grant Steele and working out. Like, I don't even know how this happened. Like I'm listening to classical music and lifting weights. Like it's weird, but it's it, one thing about classical music is that it provides this soundtrack. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're walking down the street and you're listening to something very interesting in, in your ears and your headphones, it kind of I always say this, I'm making a movie right now. Mm -hmm. I always say, yes. this is a movie. Yes. Like, oh my gosh, look at all oh, this lady's going to go crazy over here. Oh, listen to what the soundtrack's doing. You know, so it provides this amazing way to view the world um, in a way that no other music genre can. Um, but for the same token, I would totally go 80 miles in the 80, 90, 100, 110, 130, 140, 160, 80. I don't Ooh. know. I will fast. <laughs> I have no fear of speed. So okay. <laughs> let's go fast. <laughs> No, I do. So I would be <laughs> cheering you on on the sidelines. Like, yes, a member of the Griot family is doing great things. Time for a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Blackest Questions. 
Now, here's a quick question, because I, I really enjoy classical music, and I always have. I think, you know, when I joke around with other people, you know, they're like, well, I was introduced to classical music by, you know, Bugs Bunny and, and various cartoons. Right. And, you know, for some people, they were introduced to jazz with Tom and Jerry, you know, depending on how much was played in, the house, in their household. For someone who's listening to this podcast, who's like, I didn't really know much about classical music. You know, they're they're going to like look you up on YouTube. But when it comes to some of the masters, what's an easy entree for someone to listen to who may not be accustomed to listening to classical music, but that's kind of like the gateway music to get people hooked? Black box. <laughs> right answer. <laughs> you, you get a symbolic no. black fist. That is yes. the correct answer. I, I believe that, you know, this is... My whole per one of my ten poles or my purpose is to be that entrance ramp for other for new listeners. Mm -hmm. If you've never, you know, went down the rabbit hole of classical music, let me be the first you listen to. You know, and maybe this is something that you'll listen to me and you'll be like, "Wow, this is really interesting." Let me go listen to Debussy. Oh, he mm -hmm. said he's inspired by Chopin. Let me go listen to that. Um, or he's mentioned William Grant Steele. Let's go listen to him. You know, so. Um, that's one of my things that I, I think uh, is a beautiful thing about my career right now is that I'm able to be that introduction for many people. I love that. I absolutely love that. And so for our listeners, that's B-L-K-B-O-K, Black Bach. Okay, so we're going to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to have our Black bonus round, which I like to call Black Lightning. Okay, Bach, before I let you out of here, okay. we've got time for the Black bonus round. Now, this is whatever comes to your heart that is the correct answer. There are sort of, there are no set answers here. So I just want you to, to be real, okay? Yeah. Favorite city, Detroit or Amsterdam? Detroit. Okay. Yeah. On the keys, are you choosing Ray Charles or Stevie Wonder? Stevie Wonder. Kendrick Lamar or Drake? Kendrick. Turkey bacon or pork bacon? Turkey. French toast or pancakes? Ooh. Pancakes. Piano or keyboard? Piano. On the keys, are you choosing Quincy Jones or Prince? Quincy. I would agree. Which kind of, I'm in Minneapolis, so I'm glad no one heard that. <laughs> right. Ooh, listen, we got to get you out of there in the cloak of night. Yeah. Um, favorite type of airplane? Uh, commercial or, or military? Both. Commercial would be seventh Boeing triple seven. Okay. Um, military would be uh, the F twenty two Raptor. Okay. If you had to choose, most deaf or common? Most deaf. Okay. And on the keys, last question: Nina Simone or Aretha Franklin? Aretha. Me too. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Bach, thank you so much for joining thank us at the Black you, Questions. Yeah. I feel like I learned a ton. I can't wait to put on some of your music while I'm just writing, mm -hmm. cleaning, mm -hmm. thinking, and being, right? As I walk around and look at my little birds um, and, and hang out in New York City. Uh, but I really appreciate uh, you spending time with us today at the Blackest Questions. And I wish you all the best of luck and promise that you'll come back, especially after you've gone to the continent of Africa and taken a few laps around the track. Will do. All right. All right. 
And I want to thank you all for listening. The show is produced by Sasha Armstrong, Akila Shedrick, Jeffrey Trudeau, and Regina Griffin is our managing editor of podcasts. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And please download the Grio app to listen and watch many more great shows.